Welcome back to the program. Think about the things that shape our world, our perceptions and our culture. For a large part of the population, the experience of America's mistakes in Vietnam have long shaped our engagement in the world. The country's disrespect at the time for the service of those that served in Vietnam in many ways shapes the way we respond to veterans today. As leaders today try and juggle the crises of the world and play a kind of geopolitical chess, they're always chastened by the scandal that was Iran-Contra. And as any magazine or look at popular culture today will tell you, we are obsessed with outward appearances, usually at the expense of depth and understanding. All of these issues and ideas come into play in the life and struggles of my guest, Robert Timberg. Disfigured by a landmine explosion 13 days before he was to leave Vietnam, his story, his struggles, and his recovery in many ways parallel the story of the past half century. It's what makes him so effective as a journalist and why his story that he now tells us in his memoir, Blue-Eyed Boy, is a history lesson for us all. It is my pleasure to welcome Robert Timberg to the program today to talk about Blue-Eyed Boy. Robert, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, glad to be with you, Jeff. Let's talk a little bit about your book, but more specifically about why now, after all these years, did you finally decide this was the time to tell your story? Well, I think, it, you know, it was it was a story that I always, you know, kind of knew was a, probably a pretty good story, but I didn't really want to tell it because, you know, it was, I, I, I didn't feel like writing about myself, to tell you the truth, and I didn't feel like, I didn't want to write something that, that, looked overlooked the blemishes in my life that you know things i had done that i didn't wasn't especially proud of but one day i was you know not that long ago i was shaving and i you know i just sort of did this crazy kind of crazy thing i just looked saw my face in the mirror and i started focusing on it as opposed to what i normally did which was ignore it and I started talking to myself in fact I was hollering at myself and I was saying things like okay you know the joke's over it's not funny anymore you know let's let's go back to the way we were I, you know I don't want to be look like this and then of course I uh, realized how nuts it sounded and I stopped doing it but you know I realized something had happened and I thought maybe maybe now's the time to tell a story and and so you know I did and, and as, that kind of nutty trigger and as you look back on it there there have to have been periods of time that that obviously like that moment when you looked in the mirror it was very much front and center and times when you went for periods of time that you didn't think about it so much Talk about what you think those those triggering moments were. What caused it when you suddenly allowed it to be front and center in your life? You know, I, I, I truly don't know because I had spent the better part of my life, you know, ignoring it. I mean, it, there was a time when I, you know, for a year or more after I was wounded where I couldn't do anything but stop, but think about it. And I was, you know, I mean, I, I was uh, wallowing in self-pity. I was drinking too much. And, and I finally, you know, 
in a variety of through a variety of ways, found a way to change my life. And the biggest change in my life was becoming a journalist and being interested in other people's lives. And I was, you know, initially afraid actually to go out with a notebook and pen and talk to people because I didn't want them to react to me as I knew they would and I knew as others had. But, you know, when you're, you know, as as, as a journalist, you know that the key thing is to get the story and no, and it doesn't much matter, you know, what your problems are. You know, the city editor does not care what your problems are. He cares about whether you can go down to the bridge where a lady has jumped off and get the story. Well, that was actually, that, that kind of story was my first story. And, you know, I was hesitant when he said, you know, Timber, go. And I, you know, I thought, you know, does that mean me? <laughs> it was kind of hard to avoid the fact that it very much was me. And I ran down there and and I started talking to people and asking this and that so that I could find out what had happened. And I realized that, you know, sort of in the back of my mind that I'm I'm not thinking about what I look like. What I'm thinking about is, are these people telling me interesting things? And, you know, I went back to the paper, wrote the story, and thought, you know, I don't really feel like a victim right now. I feel like I've done something that mattered, that's going to matter more down the line. And uh, it did. I mean, that was my first taste of real journalism and it was like I was it it worked and it turned out that I was pretty good at it and it was like I was hanging on to this tow rope that was dragging me through my life and it was called journalism and and it made all the difference in the world. It's interesting that while you in some ways stumbled into journalism as as a second career in fact, you couldn't have chosen anything that was more perfect in the sense that it forced you, by its very nature, to look out at the world and to look into the lives of others and away from yourself. You know, Jeff, that's really, really, you know, sensitive and perceptive. That's true, because it's only as I've been thinking about it lately that that's, you know, that, that's what happened. I mean, I, I just stopped thinking about myself because at least when, when you know during the many hours that I worked because nobody cared you know I mean at least nobody that I worked with cared they were all very nice and very supportive but you know if I wasn't coming back with a story it would have been a very uh, short uh, relationships and um you're right. I had to find out about other people, and I and and you know not worry about myself. And you know I don't know quite where the when you know the transition happened, but I think I think it started to happen that day with when I went down to see what happened to the lady that jumped off the bridge. I mean, I I came back and I thought, you know, I don't feel like a victim anymore. And and so it went, you know, the next 30 or 
35 years. Yeah. The, the other side of it is that even though as a journalist you're trying to be objective and take yourself out of the story and look outward at, at whatever it is that is the story that you're covering, there's no question that your own life experience shapes how you view the world, how you see the things that you covered. Talk a little bit about that and the way you see the things that you went through in your life experience, having in some ways, as I talked about in the introduction, really shaped so much of what we've all been through over the past 50 or so years. Well, I think, you know, the the first part about how I went out and covered things, I actually tried to effectively um, politically neuter myself. I mean, I knew I learned very quickly that what mattered was the story and not any sort of spin I was going to put on it. And I don't think I ever, ever tried to impart any sort of political spin to anything I wrote. But, you know, when you write books, you can do that. You can, you're supposed to take a position, you know, uh, a, a point of view, and that was different. My books have had a very sharp point of view, and in each of them, there's been an element of Vietnam, which you know is has not been. I don't think my looking back and saying, "Oh my God, look what happened to me." I think what I've done is tried to say, "What did Vietnam do to this country?" and you know, I. It's my sense that. You know, my my. You know, the thesis of has been something like, you know, you can't send a nation, you can't send a generation or a portion of a generation off to war. Then, tell them it was all a big mistake. Without sooner or later paying a price, especially. Uh, when a good portion of that generation figured out ways to leave the fighting and dying to others. And, uh, you know, that's, that's really the, the, the element that I think runs through all of the books that I've written, even my book about Sandlot football. <laughs> How do you think younger generations see this today and you have a son who who also is part of that younger generation in some ways yeah i actually have two sons and uh i actually have three sons as a matter of <laughs> fact but uh i i don't you know the world has changed tremendously in in in, in terms of serving um uh, you know, in military service. I had always believed, grew up believing that if the nation's at war, um, it should be a burden equally shared. And in many ways, the draft did that. Well, you know, without a draft now, you have, uh, you know, if you want to be in the service, you join the service. If you don't, you don't have to. And I think you know, that that makes it hard to sort of figure out what 
exactly how you feel about things. I mean, I, I personally think, you know, doing away with the draft was, was a big mistake because, among other things, when you don't, when you're not drafting middle class kids, you are not getting the kind of hostility toward military adventurism that you might get if you were. And, uh, I mean, when you have an all-volunteer force, it sort of frees up a president to do pretty much what he wants to do. And um, I don't think that's a a helpful trait. How did your own parents view you going into the military? Uh, my, My own parents were... We're, we're show business people, and I don't think they had any idea what what I was doing or why I was doing it, and they just sort of were kind of amazed that I sort of had wound up at Annapolis, and uh, and you know they basically cheered me on. We never really discussed anything serious about the military. Oddly enough. Why did you make that choice to go to Annapolis? Well, you know, I my, my father was a, a tremendously talented man. And musically, he was a, a composer. And uh, he, he wrote, you know, background music for Fleischer Studio cartoons like Popeye and Olive Oil and Casper the Friendly Ghost, etc., and, you know, he, but what he was and what I sensed, and frankly, I'm not, I'm not sure that I got this right, but I sensed that he was timid. And he was timid in a way that was undercutting his talent. And I reacted against that. I, uh, I, decided that, you know, that didn't work for me. And so I I started doing things that I thought of that he wouldn't do, like playing football in high mm-hmm. school. And then, you know, even playing football for a couple of years after I, you know, after high school, before I went to the Naval Academy. And I would have played football in, at the Naval Academy if I was good enough. And, you know, then when it came time to decide what, what, you, what I was going to do when I graduated, you know, in, in, from the Naval Academy, you can go into the Navy or the Marine Corps. And I viewed the Marine Corps as the tougher choice. So that's what I did. And, you know, again, I'm sort of reacting against this perceived timidity of my father. And then when I, in the Marine Corps, we had to choose, you know, what our occupational specialty was going to be, you know. And I chose the infantry because that was the tougher, the toughest branch that I could imagine. And it was pretty tough. But, you know, these were not all well-thought-out decisions. <laughs> these, this, there, were, there was a an emotional quotient to all of it. And, you know, at a certain point, I may have stopped even thinking about my father and just 
you know, making decisions based on what I viewed as the toughest thing to do, which I think in the final analysis is not anything I would recommend to anybody. <laughs> and how much, <laughs> to what extent, how much did you think about any of this when you were lying there in the, in the hospital bed and having all of these surgeries and going through all of this after the explosion, after the accident? I didn't think about it a lot. I, I, I thought mostly, uh, what do I do now? And, uh, and I don't, I'm not really looking forward to the next dressing change because I know it's going to really hurt. Mm. You know, I just wasn't having, uh, too many deep thoughts back then. Talk a little bit about what happened. You were 13 days from leaving country. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, that was what the story was. I was, I had been, you know, the Marine Corps tour, overseas tour was 13 months. I was 13 days uh, short of of uh, rotating home. And I was riding on a, a vehicle, a tracked vehicle called an Amtrak, which is, was the Marine Corps equivalent, similar to what the Army calls an armored personnel carrier. And we hit a landmine, and the fuel the fuel just ignited. And I sort of found myself in the midst of uh, a flaming pyre, I guess, the best way to describe it. And I received 30-degree burns of the uh, of my face and my upper body. So that's that's what happened. I mean, it was, you know, and it was a long way back. Is it your sense that the legacy of Vietnam still? impacts us to even today do i think that yeah i do i do i i think i i think that somehow the sourness the sourness that we 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 see in american society and particularly in american politics much of it has its roots in the vietnam war period i mean people you know I mean, you probably can't get people to even say this or even think it anymore. But there's something, you know, when you see your kid go off to war and then you see the kid next door going to graduate school, it it, it, it does something to you. Or, or you see the kid next door who has no obvious uh, disability not going into the service. And you know that they've pulled some sort of legal or medical stunt to keep him out of the service. You know that that leaves a very sour taste, and you know it doesn't go away. And, and you know, in, in in a number of cases, the guy who watched his son go off to war, you know, saw his son come back in a box, and you know that 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 was a very very common experience on both sides you know some went some didn't and uh, you know I have a friend said you know there's a a wall 50 miles thick and five miles high between those of us who went and those who didn't and that wall is never going to come down and from time to time I think that's 
true. Other times I think it's too strong, but I think it's nevertheless, it's at play. It's at play in American society. I, you know, I just, I see it in politics as well as just normal, you know, a normal uh, social relationships. How did you see the connection when you covered Iran-Contra and you subsequently wrote a book about that, the Nightingale song about three uh, other Annapolis graduates that were involved in Iran-Contra? Talk about that nexus. Well, I, what I, I... I thought of... You know, I one of the things I thought about was... You know, this, this all happened under Ronald Reagan, and Ronald Reagan was the, you know the generator of, of, of many of these things. And Ronald Reagan did something, I mean, I, I have a lot of problems with a lot of things that Ronald Reagan <laughs> did. But one of, the, one of the things he did that was, you know, that no one can ever, to my mind, ever take away from him, is he brought the military back into the body politic, if you will. I mean, made them part of society again. Military guys were, up until that time, were still viewed as, you know, different. And nobody to be, there was nothing worthy of, uh, you know, nothing worthy about being a soldier or Marine or whatever. And Ronald Reagan said, you know, you're men and women I can count on. I trust you. Wear your uniforms with pride. And that that went a long way. I mean, I don't think too many people really noticed it at the time, but the guys in uniform noticed it. And it, and, and, and it created a, a bond between Ronald Reagan and men and women in the service that you know, endured for quite some time. And so we get to Iran-Contra and we see Reagan wanting to get hostages out. And the, the, the Annapolis guys, McFarland, Poindexter, and North, not really seeing, you know, that this is a bad thing to do. And it may have been a little clumsy but it certainly wasn't evil, and and I I don't think it was criminal either, and but and they did it because you know I think they thought it was right, but they also felt that they would be pleasing President Reagan. But the second half of that, which was assisting the Contras with the Nicaraguan guerrillas, I mean, many in Congress had, and particularly the Democrats in Congress, wanted nothing to do with this. They saw. Nicaragua as, you know, another Vietnam. But people like Oliver North, you know, knew that Ronald Reagan wanted the Contras to be taken care of. And, you know, he, Ronald Reagan called these guerrillas the equivalent of our founding fathers. He called them, he labeled them freedom fighters. And, Congress was, you know, we had sort of fielded the Contras to begin with, and then, um, and then we, we, you know, we were cutting off uh, supplies to them, and 
you know, Ali North, who was one of the perhaps the most on-the-ground guy in terms of working with the Contras, I mean, he knew what it meant to be, you know, without supplies. I, I talked to one of his, one of the guys who was a platoon leader with him in Vietnam, this guy named Don Moore, and he said, you know, uh, the supply situation was atrocious. We were stripping the bodies of our wounded and dead to get canteens, to get boots and ponchos. And a firefight, you'd hear, Corman, Corman, then dibs on the canteen, dibs on the boots. When you're talking about Ali North and the Contras, you know, you're talking about that kind of situation. I mean, Ali knew combat, and he knew what you needed. And it wasn't an intellectual exercise for him. And and when Ronald Reagan said this is the thing to do, I mean, you know, I don't think Ali was, you know, one of my one of my friends who was a very very bright Marine and far senior to Ali said, you know, Ali was basically a Marine infantry officer. He wasn't the brightest guy in the world. <laughs> Ali did what he thought he should do. And he did it, you know. I mean, Ali almost single-handedly helped, the, I think, of his holding the Contras together and kind of did it with bailing wire and tape. And, you know, he had, he had a, this is my favorite story about Ali North and the Contras. There was a guy named Bill Haskell who was with Ali in Vietnam. He was a fellow platoon leader. Well, Bill comes home and Bill gets out, and but Bill has lost an eye in Vietnam, but he becomes a, a tax accountant. He has his own little tax place in Prince George's County, Maryland, and he's going about being a you know a tax accountant doing people's taxes, and he starts hearing about Ollie, you know, and being involved in the with the Contras. And he somehow makes contact with Ollie and says, hey, you know, do you need some help? <laughs> and Ollie says, well, yeah. He says, well, okay, I can, I, I can, uh, I want to help. And Ollie says, hey, Bill, you know, that's great, but we can't pay you. He says, I don't care. <laughs> I don't, I don't need to be paid. I just want to do this. And, I mean, Bill was looking for some adventure, really. But Bill Haskell and Ollie somehow together managed to get an airfield built in Costa Rica. How did that happen? Could I have done that? No, not a chance. And could and but somehow Bill Haskell and Ollie North pull this off and I find that amazing. Amazing. Robert Timberg, his memoir is Blue Eyed Boy. Robert, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Hey again Jeff, as I say, I have this really warm feeling for Napa. Well, appreciate it. You take care. Be well. Okay, thank you. Thank you. You too. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.